Welcome to this very special set of A Shot in the Arm podcasts, coming to you with the Global Health Council to provide an overview of everything that's going on on the 76th World Health Assembly in Geneva. Now, our partner, as I said, is the Global Health Council, and I'm delighted to be joined by its CEO, Elisha Dunjorju, who is also a friend of A Shot in the Arm podcast. Hey, Elisha, how are you? Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited about our special episode series. Oh, it's going to be a blast. And while I have water next to me now, I would imagine that by the end of the next five days, six days, there may well be something stronger, <laughs> hey? I think you're going to need some lozenges yeah. at the end of this. Now, um, uh, for context, I'm not in Geneva at the moment. I'm in Brussels. And uh, for those of our uh, listeners and viewers who uh, can't quite tell, my background is from a really funky hotel in downtown Brussels. So I, I ap apologize for the Belgian cartoons behind me. I'm also facing the front of a street. So if you hear a bus go by, that's that's what it is. Um, at your end, Elisha, I sense there's a slight touch of an Alfred Hitchcock, the birds going on. <laughs> yes, I'm. Uh, I haven't left for Geneva yet either. I leave tomorrow. We Global Health Council is based in Washington D.C. Um, I'm working from home, and I have a nest of starlings who, new starlings who are just learning to eat and walk and fly <laughs> right outside my wall. So, apologies. It does feel a little. Uh, Tippy Hedron esque sometimes in here, but I'm safe inside. They're outside. It's just good. Johnny Good. Let's hope it stays that way. But no, I mean, nature for you. That's wonderful. Um, so, so look, I mean, first, first question out of the um, out of the gate, as it were. Uh, this is our primer. Why are we doing these podcasts? What on earth persuaded us to do this? You persuaded me, so I can punt that question back to you. But I think, you know, the World Health Organization, it's something everyone hears about. You hear about the World Health Assembly. Uh, but I think there's always a little bit of mystery about what exactly happens. Why is this such a big deal? And for the global health community and, and you know, global health geeks to go to. So uh, I think that these podcasts will hopefully translate some of the the very technical things that happen during the week and you know WHA is the decision making body of the World Health Organization the World Health Organization is part of the United Nations entities and so it's a big gathering of member states policymakers private sector folks civil society communities um, all coming together to really influence how the world works together on public health issues. And this year, it's important for a number of reasons. One, it's the 75th birthday of the World Health Organization, which is something we, we should celebrate and reflect on. Um, but also, um, you, you know, WHO has just sort of ended the um, uh, public health emergency phase of the COVID pandemic. Um, so we're so we're going to look be looking forward to seeing how this venerable institution can can become fit for purpose for really for the twenty first century. Absolutely, yeah. It's a pretty heck busy year at the World Health Assembly, and and so we'll be doing uh, daily podcasts. We'll be doing them round the corner from the Palais de Congress in Geneva. 
um, will be doing them courtesy of UNAIDS in one of their offices, which we're very grateful for them uh, to give us. Um, but there's a lot of really important news, as we said, coming out. And um, what are we what are we hoping we're going to cover? We're, we're, there's obviously um, progress or discussion around pandemics, the pandemics treaty. There's the Universal Healthcare um, uh, General Assembly special session coming up later in the year. But WHO has obviously been a strong advocate of universal healthcare, UHC. Some movement on non-communicable diseases. But we're also going to wrap up at the end of it with a reflection on how transparent this decision-making process is and who um, and, and how civil society groups like the Global Health Council is able to get a, a uh, a seat at the table. And I, I I just wondered from a Global Health Council strategic perspective, what are you looking for? What, Where are you really looking to see decisions and uh, progress and indeed areas of concern? Yeah, great question. So, I, I mean, it is a week long, more than a week long of a very heavy agenda. And if people are interested, all of the documents, the agenda, the timetable is all on the WHO's WHA web page. Um, so if you really want to delve even deeper than Ben and I are going to talk through the week, you can, you know, read stacks of documents um, to get a sense. So I think, Ben, you covered quite a few of the things that for us as a Global Health Council, we're really focusing on. I, I you know, there's a tendency at WHA to want to cover every single topic and that becomes really challenging, but Global Health Council is a membership organization, and so we certainly do have members that are following different agenda items that maybe us as the Secretariat is not is not able to cover. But the the big things are the pandemic preparedness, the public health threats and emergencies piece. As you mentioned, WHO declared an end to COVID-19 as an international public health threat. Um, that actually happened right before the multi-stakeholder hearings at the United Nations in New York, um, a week ago uh, on on pandemic preparedness and response. And so it will be quite interesting to see what that means moving forward. I do think it's important now to say that COVID is not the only public health threat <laughs> that WHO is tracking. I think as of last count, there's slightly over 50 of different grades that WHO is looking at. And of course, we saw over the past year, we've seen monkeypox, we've seen Ebola, we've seen Marburns, other, you know, um, airborne flu viruses that all present a problem. So the conversation this week is not just about COVID. Certainly that really, you know, fueled a sense of urgency around these public health emergency conversations. Um, but they go on all the time. You might just not hear about them. They might not be pandemic level, um, but certainly <laughs> there's a constant watch for these. And there are several processes moving at WHO, one is around a pandemic accord, which would be a binding agreement among member states of how they collaborate and work together and hopefully share information and technologies and respond more quickly, um, you know, together as, as a global entity than we did during COVID. And that would also address any emerging pandemic. There's also uh, international health regulations, which sort of tells countries how they're supposed to man health systems, react with health systems, data technology, those are under review as well. Um, and of course we have, you know, the new pandemic fund at the World Bank. We have this pandemic resolution coming in September. 
So there's quite a bit of things, you know, going on that all need to sync up together, which I think for civil society is a key advocacy point. Well, well, why don't we start with pandemics and dive in there a bit more? Because um, one, you are also one of the civil society board members on the World Bank Pandemic yes. Fund, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, I represent the Global North as the primary representative. So, so you've got the in-depth insight into all of this. Um, I, I, I... <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Let's not oversell it to the audience. <laughs> but, 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 but again, bearing in mind your starlings to the, to the side of you, one of the things that that I've been tracking, and I don't know if you think it's going to come up at WHA, is that we're seeing yet more examples of mammal to mammal and and human infection with um, uh, avian flu, H1N5, I think it is. And um, of course, we're being told not to panic, not to worry. But um, do you think we are ready for that to become a pandemic? Or more broadly, do you think that we've got our pandemic preparations adequately in place for something like um, a, a, an infection like that? It's, it's a good question. I think, um, I think there's a couple of things that we learned from COVID, which is that viruses don't care about borders, nor do they care about political timetables, right? So I think that all of these processes happening are necessary, but are we prepared if say the next pandemic or regional epidemic happens within the next six months. I I don't know. I would hope so. I think there's certainly lessons that we've taken from COVID and other pandemics and epidemics more recently, and and countries are sort of more aware that there can be a threat um, coming. I think COVID came a little bit out of left fields, even though it probably shouldn't have um, at the level that it did. And so now I do think the countries are on alert, which is helpful. I would say, though, you know, just to not and not to shift gears because it's not a shift. But I, I think your question about the the animal to human, mammal to mammal transmission is an interesting one because the principles around one health and really including animal welfare and monitoring of animal disease uh, as part of the health system is a conversation that really bubbled up during COVID and has certainly been prevalent in our discussions at the pandemic fund governing board. Um, I don't think we've gotten to the point of addressing that as much as we should, but it is something to look out for this week to see how that conversation factors in, not just on the pandemic pieces that will be discussed, but also on the universal health coverage piece. Because we often talk about health workers and the health system and laboratory technicians and epidemiologists. I don't think we talk perhaps broadly enough around animal-focused epidemiology or, you know, animal monitoring in, in the farm system and, and places where you can see these diseases begin. Uh, and so there has been a push from those who really advocate on One Health and environmental conservation and biodiversity to really include that as part of our definition of the health system. And, I mean, that sort of takes us back to the treaty because, you know, what one of the criticisms of the multilateral system is that you know, you're only as good as your lowest common denominator. The, you know, the thing here is to get consensus and agreement. And how on earth are we going to get consensus on um, 
giving the WHO access in real time to information about local outbreaks. Um, and yes, COVID, I'm looking at you. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, if there is another lesson that we've learned from yeah. COVID, it is that we, 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 and I'm loath to use this term vaccine nationalism, but we really saw that yeah. the, um, the international community deprioritized the international community component of itself and just went back to its sort of atomic national elements. And it was, it was a bun fight and free for all. Yeah, I think that was a surprise, right? I mean, I think in the time when we needed collaboration between nations the most, again, because viruses don't care where your national borders begin and end, we did see that nationalistic trend. I think that's going to be a real challenge in the negotiations around the accord. I mean, there's also, you know, pieces around intellectual property and, you know, data security issues now, certainly. Um, that sharing that information freely between countries and with you know entities like the WHO, there have to be sufficient protections in place um, so that that is not misused nefariously, right? Um, I think too, you know, part of <laughs> part of the challenge in me answering that question is that civil society has been removed from that pandemic accord process. Uh, we were invited in the beginning to attend the meetings of the international negotiating body um, and have been able to provide some comments, but were, I would say, kicked out more uh, more quickly and earlier in the process than we thought we would be. And so we're continuing to push for times where we can interject and have access and for transparency on that. Um, because we know another lesson learned from COVID is that when member states dropped the ball, it was civil society and communities that took care of the populations. And that was across the board. And we've seen that in every pandemic that has ever happened with HIV, with TB, with, you know, Ebola, like everything, communities, civil society come in and fill the gap when you know, state officials are just kind of negotiating political turf battles and citizens are suffering for that. So to remove us from the process seems, in my opinion, I mean, biased perhaps because I am from civil society, but it seems incredibly short-sighted and also really dismisses the expertise that civil society brings, not just in service delivery or being the voice of community, but we have, you know, loads of expertise on advocacy, communications, resource mobilization, partnership. I mean, all of the things that you need to make a document, a, a binding accord work and be sustainable. So um, I think, you know, that's one of the topics that you and I are going to talk about, not just for the pandemic process, but generally, I think there's been a real shrinking of civil society space and access across global health initiatives. So yeah, it is, it's, a, it's a problem that we need yeah, to address. It, it, it is, absolutely. And it makes me think uh, the um, preparation begins with the people. Um, and, and that really is a lesson, as you say, we have learned from every response to uh, an epidemic. And why not get ahead of it rather than realizing right. we need it? Prevention um, is worth, you know, a yeah. pound of cure or whatever that yeah, expression yeah, is, right? Yeah, yeah. 
Turning tracks a little, a little bit, there's also a focus on non-communicable diseases mm -hmm. at the WHA. And I'm, I'm interested in this because it, it, in a way, there's a, an opportunity for the range of health issues that are not infectious diseases to benefit almost the halo effect of an investment in infectious disease that we've seen over the last 20 odd years. Um, what are you looking out for and hoping to see next week? I, I mean, I would love to see some financial commitments. I think there's been a lot of talk about NCDs, again, particularly because we saw the comorbidity issue during COVID um, that people with a non-communicable disease, whether it was obesity, mental health issues, diabetes, heart disease, you know, cancer, the range, um, really were more impacted by the the virus and and vice versa. I think we're still trying to see what the long term implications are of you know people who've had the virus and their proclivity to get a non communicable disease or for it to develop. So there's been a lot of raising of the issue. WHO has certainly done work on that. I think just this past week or the week before they they released a framework on how to meaningfully engage people living with NCDs. Um, and so I think there's a tension, but we need action. And and particularly around mental health, I think that that one has been, um, again, something that is getting more attention. Great. But it's, uh, it's a hard one, right? I mean, mm. there's a lot of stigma around it. There's, you know, the, I don't think that the health system is as well equipped to deal with that as it is with a physical manifestation of an ailment. Um, and so really elevating that as not just an uh, sort of side issue anymore, but it's really, a, you know, someone has said it's, a, it's another global pandemic, essentially. Um, not, not viral, but we're seeing it with kids, adolescents, adults. I mean, it's really the full spectrum of, of age groups and uh, hits in any country at any time, right? So I think we yeah. need to see some action there and some real commitment from the member states and policymakers to finance that and, and take it forward. And and take advantage of this moment. We've come out of um, a series of global lockdowns in, in different ways, in affecting different communities, different individuals in different ways. But one lesson we have learned is that there is, uh, post-COVID or with COVID, a very significant challenge of mental health. Yes. And, and actually, if you look back at... Um, uh, HIV and its co-traveler TB in sub-Saharan Africa in the 2000s, mental health issues were were primary across across the board for people, and yet that got very very little attention. So um, I agree with you. That's that's a really key component that unites, if you like, um, all of the approaches that we need to take to the various health challenges. Um, and yeah, we'll we'll look particularly at mental health. But the other way that, that this comes at us is in our, our commitment to a basic package of care services, which, of course, um, in uh, UN terms is considered universal health care or UHC. And we're going to be looking at that. Um, why is that important to you? Well, I think it's, as you said, it's, you know, the, the, it's an essential package. I have to make one correction for you, though, that it's not universal health care, it's universal health coverage. And that is a distinction because 
and a purposeful language choice that there, you know, in the advocacy around the SDGs and sustainable development goals and the Millennium Development Goals, many of us push for universal health care, which is basically care for everybody without mm. cost. And there was a lot of debate about that. And so coverage is where we landed. And that does involve, you know, insurance schemes and financing conversations. The the goal though of either one of those and why it's important is because you need to have essential health services that do not financially burden people, regardless of where you live, who you are, whatever your demographics are, it should be the same equitable approach to healthcare for all. Uh, and we don't have that now. We have people left behind, again, not to keep bringing up lessons learned from COVID, but we know that the health systems and I live in, you know, I live in the United States. We didn't do a great job in supporting our health system during COVID and certainly not the healthcare workers and caregivers that were, again, so responsible for getting us through this pandemic. Um, and so really making sure that everyone has an entree into the health system and can receive that essential package of services so people can achieve health and well-being. That should be our collective global health goal. Well, let, let me let me push you a bit on this because I know um, spiritually and intellectually <laughs> you would go for UH universal health care. I certainly would. <laughs> the challenge is that universal health coverage is everybody gets covered, but what do they get covered with? And it could be the lowest of the lowest uh, services available. Yeah, I think. Um... It is. It, it makes it more challenging to achieve, um, for sure. And I think that that's, you know, um, someone has said, I think it's actually Gatinji Gatti, who's the CEO of an organization called AMREF, has repeatedly said, there's no global health system and there's no global health care, that all of those things happen, designed, delivered, implemented, at the national level. And so when you talk about the commitments to universal health coverage that happen at the United Nations, whether it's the high level meeting or at WHO through WHA, you're talking about member states having to commit to reform and improve their own national and subnational health systems. And that your point is exactly right, that what, what does that mean? What's included in that? And so there is a lot of advocacy and UHC 2030 and the civil society engagement mechanism for that have put together a great action agenda that has that, those points. And WHO itself has done a lot of work on what that essential package of services would look like, including things like mental health services, non-communicable disease screening, and all of those things happen first within primary health care, right? And so that for universal health coverage is the, the pathway to get there that countries, counties, cities, whatever part of where you live needs a strong primary health care system so that you can, again, do prevention and make sure that your population is healthy and isn't in line in case anything happens to get that tertiary care. Yeah, and and don't forget diagnostics because yes. um, without uh, without diagnostics, we don't know what we're necessarily fighting or, or combating. So <laughs> yes, diagnostics are a key to this. Yeah. Um, so we we touched at the start on the one of the reasons for us doing this is to 
Ryan brings some transparency to the mechanisms of the World Health Organization and the World Health Assembly more more precisely. Um, what what are what are the challenges that you're seeing for for your members and for your partners in civil society around the WHA? Yeah, I think access is a big issue right now. So uh, there's just like with the United Na other United Nations, you have to have accreditation as a civil society organization to participate in the official proceedings. The process to become that, have that relationship with the WHO is not the same process for the other UN organizations. And it's a little bit more cumbersome and not always as clear and accessible. So for luckily for Global Health Council, we do have non-state actor status. And that's great because then we can go into the negotiations. We're able to make statements from the floor about the agenda items. We can, you know, communicate with member states that are in the room um, and advocate in that setting. But we have limited access even with that. So pre-COVID, it was a much more open environment. Essentially, as a as an organization that has members, we could bring a big delegation of our membership who would all have that access, who could go into the official negotiations. During COVID, of course, you know, first there was virtual access and then there was hesitancy to have a crowd. And so we completely understood that we went from an unlimited amount of, of registrations to four. Yes. Wow. A, a big, yes, a big, a big drop. Um, this year we're up to six and we're getting the reason that that's, you know, construction and lack of room and all of these things. And, and so I, I would say for Global Health Council, we're in a little bit of a, a unique position that we are a member organization and so really want to be able to provide our members with access and the ability to to advocate within the official system. Maybe if you're a smaller organization and six, you get six registrations, that's okay, but there's kind of no differentiation based on the size of the NGO or the non-state actor. I'd also say that just one, because we have that accreditation, if you don't have non-state actor status, you have no chance of access. Um, and so we've been doing a lot of work as well to, to make that more open. And there's supposed to be a civil society commission being announced from WHO. I mean, Dr. Tedros is very supportive of civil society access. Um, there is a best practices guide that the WHO has about non-state actor participation. Does it always get followed? Well, questionable. Well, but this is, but this is, you know, this is the thing, isn't it? I mean, the the countries are his boss, and um, you know, and I wonder if you see actually the um, the war in Ukraine and the, the series of poly crises that face us bleeding over into this. Because one way of looking at um, Europe's first major, major land war since the end of the Second World War is that um, the, the, the sort of philosophical approach to open societies versus controlled societies is coming back on. And I, I wonder if we're seeing that in some of this, in these decisions. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. I mean, I think, so I would just say the member states are key to this, that we need member states to speak up on behalf of non-state actors for access, because you're right, they are Dr. Tedros's boss. Um, I think the war, the dynamics of the war certainly play out in the negotiating room. 
Um, I think, you know, this is, in my experience, not working for a member state, but kind of watching it, whatever UN type negotiation you're in, there's a lot going on there that's not about the subject matter on the table, right? I mean, there's a lot of diplomatic efforts wrapped up into statements and conversations and um, also hesitancy or desire to set a precedent through through the decision. So that that happens. I I think that there are always some member states who are more open to having civil society than others, and you can find that in in the dynamics as well. Um, I don't know if it's the if I would put it on the war so much as I would put it. I, I mean, I really did see a shrinking of civil society space and access during the pandemic. And some of that was needed for safety and health. And some of it, I think governments took a little bit of an opportunity to shut things down that mm. um, for a longer period than maybe needed to happen. And I think we're still digging our way out of that. So one final note about the shenanigans that are going to happen next week is that it's not all about uh, what what actually goes on in the UN in the Palais de Congress. The, the networking, the outside receptions, uh, the meetings, the protests, so much business happens outside of this. Um, what receptions uh, uh, have you got your eye on and uh, places and... Um, Forced bumping into leaders outside of the, the the conference halls are you hoping to achieve? That's an excellent point. And for people who have never been to the World Health Assembly, I know we're talking about registrations for the official negotiations. For non-state actors in civil society, most people don't come to Geneva for that purpose. Most people come for this side circus, if that's not a too cynical word. But uh, there's a lot of, you know... Um, events happening, receptions, Global Health Council, we're hosting a, a networking hour. A lot of that happens. Um, we're hosting an a, event with um, a couple of our members around frontline health workers. Um, there's also several different organizations holding events around the pandemic treaty, the, health, uh, the high-level meetings at the UN that are coming up. Um, Universal Health Coverage 2030 is doing quite a bit of that. Um, there are a couple of different calendars if people want to take a look at what's happening. Global Health Council, we have a calendar on our website. UN Foundation also does a great job of collating events. I have to say right now I've been getting tons of invitations and I have been RSVPing to everything so I can put them on my calendar. So I just want to apologize in advance <laughs> to anyone that received an RSVP yes for me if I don't show up. Um, or, or there is a lot. there is a miracle of modern science about to take place where clones of Elisha will be parading <laughs> exactly. around the hotels of Geneva. Yeah, and it's not me alone. I think that everyone is in the same boat because it's a wonderful opportunity this year too. It really feels like people were anxious to be back in person. Um, last year, it, WHA was in person, but was a smaller group. Mm. But this year, I think you're going to see you know, half, if not more, of the, the global health community in Geneva. Um, and, and there's a lot of networking that happens, particularly at the Hotel of the Intercontinental, uh, which is pretty close to the, the Palais of the World Health Assembly. So um, sometimes you end up sitting in, just sitting in there all day, meeting people. Uh, but there, it is a really great experience to see everyone there. And I'm hoping 
um, that our partners from low and middle income countries were able to get visas on time. I know that that has been a real struggle with uh, these global health meetings. It was certainly a struggle for the UN hearing, multi-stakeholder hearings that happened. Again, lots of stuff is, you know, backed up from the time of the pandemic, but mm. it is, we keep having these meetings in the global north and it's really hard for people to access it. So just another flag on equity for the decision makers of the world have some meetings in Africa, Latin America, yeah. Asia. Um, it doesn't always have to be Geneva or New York. Yeah. And, and let's work with countries to make sure the visa requirements um, yes, are, absolutely. Are manageable and understandable. Yeah, totally. Yes. Yeah. So, so great. So, um, anything that we've missed that we we ought to flag up before? Well, what we... are you looking forward to? You've asked me all these questions, and we're doing these podcasts together. So, what are you? What are you looking to say? Well, so um, uh, a few things. Um, funding. I'm really interested in seeing how we propose to fund what needs to be a global movement for health. And um, WHO is always fighting for adequate funding. Ministries of Health in many countries are, you know, at the bottom of the totem pole. Although we have seen in some countries, and not all of them developed countries, that, that health budgets are the largest or part of the largest, one of the largest um, budget items in a in a country's um, annual budget. Um, so I want to see about how we're going to how we're going to do around what we're going to do around funding. Um, I'm very interested to see what the WHO Foundation, which is headed up by our friend Anil Sonny, I'm very interested to see how they approach um, supporting WHO at at this 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 coming week because there's a an opportunity for. Um, the private sector for foundations and others that wouldn't necessarily um, be able to support WHO, perhaps to get more skin in the game, as it were. Um, and um, and for me, it, it it does sort of come back to you. You touched on the One Health question, but at the at the at the forefront of everybody's mind has to be health in the context of the climate crisis. I think now and. Um, you know, we are, looks like we're on track to be 1.5 degrees uh, consistently across the broad um, higher in global temperatures starting, I think, in a couple of years' time. And it's um, it's going to affect health very, very directly. So I'm, I'm going to be looking for at least some nuggets of commitment to move in a direction where we we think of ourselves as bigger rather than um, avoiding these global institutions um, uh, and, uh, and and sort of trying to impose barriers and borders and walls around our, our little territories. Um, I'm also, frankly, looking forward to having a cocktail with you because we haven't had a chance to do that since the pandemic. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I, we will definitely have cocktails. But I, I just want to say on the climate, I mean, we didn't even talk about that. And of course, climate change affects everything we just, whether it's pandemics, health coverage, mental health, certainly. There's a lot of, of great information coming out about how climate change is really impacting mental health. And, you know, the... Um, Concert, concert, conference of parties on climate is happening in the fall. 
And it's actually the first time that they're they're planning on really taking up health as a main topic. I mean, it's it comes up everyone, but there's an intentionality there. So Ben, you're right that seeing what happens at WHO and how that leads into um, the fall COP will be really, really important. And, and of course, I would be remiss not to say that I'm also very excited about the awards that the WHO is giving at the start of the WHA. Tedros is awarding um, Lifetime Achievement Awards. I mean, my gosh, doesn't that sound like the Oscars or the Emmys? Well, I also feel kind of old hearing that because I, I know, <laughs> like some of these are the same lifetime. <laughs> so. Right, right. Well, it will be, um, you, you know, Jean-Jacques Mayembe from Democratic Republic of Congo um, and, and his partner in crime, Peter Piot, and our friend Peter Piot, who, uh, you know, both of them have played such an instrumental role in understanding Ebola and uh, mobilizing global responses to to that particular um, infectious disease threat and, of course, HIV. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. Um, I have the shorter flight because I've already braved the um, Atlantic, got absolutely no sleep, um, so a little bit uh, exhausted after um, after this after this podcast. I'm quite sure I will have a lie down and not wake up until tomorrow. Um, so I, I hope you have a safe flight over and um, looking forward to us kicking it off on Monday. Excellent. Well, thank you. I, I think it's not as bad as coming from the West Coast. So um, hopefully a little bit of sleep. But yeah, it's great. I will get there. We'll kick it off and, and we'll get those cocktails. Sounds good. Well, travel safe, Elisha. Thanks so much, Ben. Have fun in, with your nap. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it for this uh, first episode. Thank you to the Global Health Council and, of course, to Elisha Dunn-Georgiou. I am going to hold you to that cocktail. Thanks also to our production assistant, Waisha Raphael, who's monitoring everything we do from Johannesburg. And, of course, thank you to our director and producer, Eric Espera of Newstock Media. You'll be able to find these podcasts live stream on LinkedIn, on Facebook and YouTube, and we will promote them and distribute them heavily on all of those platforms, plus the uh, social media platforms, including ones with little blue birds. So thanks for watching this um, and looking forward to keeping you updated as we spend the next few days. Bye now.